good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Lauren Landis and joining us shortly will be the late Patty Fink. Our guest today is Dr. Joel A. Davis-Brown. Uh, he has a new book out. Uh, it's called The Souls of Queer Folk, How Understanding LGBT uh, Culture Can Transform Your Leadership Practice. Are you there? I am here. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, welcome to Dallas. Um, in your introduction, you said you always wanted to tell the truth about LGBT people, and I love that line. Can you explain what you were talking about there? I could, and I have to share it to you at some point. I have a very weak uh, connection with Dallas, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, the way that we've been portrayed, discussed, characterized through most of modern history has been um, inaccurate. And in some cases, an outright lie if you look at what's being discussed in the media right now. So our lives, our experiences, our journeys, the essence of who we are, has not really been misunderstood. And I don't think many people in mainstream society, even those who I think are allies, are taking the time to really think and ask, what does it mean to LGBTQ besides the stereotypes and beyond the stereotypes and besides and beyond the notions that we see on TV? And so for me, as a researcher, but also as someone who's just nerdy and also as a member of the community, I thought it was vitally important to take a step back and ask that question and to approach it with the type of community that respect that I think our community deserves. Um, no, uh, we're here. Um, I, I was, so, was, was, was going to ask. Uh, Dr. Brown, is it possible? Are you far from your phone? No, I'm actually right here next to my phone right now. Uh, that's a better connection. Yeah, that's a little bit better. You you sound really far away. It, it was cutting in and out a little bit uh, as we were talking. That's cutting out. You don't have it on speakerphone, do you? <laughs> I did have it on speakerphone, but now I have it. I'm using the headset. Okay, ah, great. That's great. perfect. Yeah, that's better. Thank you. <laughs> okay. We don't want to miss anything you have to say. <laughs> I appreciate that. So um, let's just talk a little bit about um, leadership coming from the LGBT community. Um, I, I know why you chose the community, because you're a member of it. But what are some examples of how leadership, uh, how leaders can learn from the LGBT community? Um, so that's a very good question. And can you hear me okay? I just want to make sure that the connection is strong. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's better. Excellent. So what I would say is we're living in, and I think all of us would agree, some fairly unpredictable time, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have COVID. We have um, inflation. We don't know where the economy is going. We're worried about climate change. We've had extremism on the rise, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. We've also seen uh, situations where there's been more war and, and armed conflict, particularly in the East, in Eastern Europe with Ukraine and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So the question for leaders right now is how do you deal with that unpredictability? How do you find strength, resilience? How do you find yourself and make yourself rooted at a time where everything seems upside down? And from my eyes and from my vantage point, there's no group that could better help and teach the world about how to be strong leaders and be adaptive leaders in that type of environment than our community. 
primarily because we've lived in that type of environment based on the discrimination, the bias, and the things that we've had to deal with, you know, for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, when we look at the community, it's not just a matter of Ladies saying, okay, how is U.S. Marshal thrive. And to me, when you see that, when you notice that, there's something there that even if I were not a member of the community, I would say there's something within this community that I want to follow up. I would love to sell, or at the very least, understand what makes them tick. And so that, for me, is why you know queer leadership in particular, I think, is so important for the world because it helps to guide and instruct the world on how we all, as you know, part of the human species, can live in these unpredictable times but still have a sense of purpose and vision and connectedness to people around us. So, so part of uh, you know this this leadership, um, I, I I assume is like a better understanding of the LGBTQ plus community, and you have a section of your book. One of the chapters is LGBTQ plus cultural values. Now, I've always I, I always kind of like hesitate to say that there there isn't there even is a LGBTQ plus culture because I. I do that with like all kinds of groups because everybody's so different. It's hard to just paint one brush, uh, one community with the one stroke of the same brush. Um, but you did some research and um, you came up with the two main com- components um, about what leadership in the LGBTQ community was. And you did come up with some. Can you talk about what some of those? I can, and I want to take a step back just to answer or to respond to what you said earlier. We have to recognize that all groups, there's this dissimilarity within every cultural group. So I'm African-American. Is that to say that all African-Americans think or act the same way? No. Of course not. I'm an American. Right. I'm an American. Is that to say that Americans all think and act the same way? We know that not to be true, particularly in this election cycle. Mm -hmm. So, But there are things that bind us. There are things that... Um, are similar, and I think we can't be afraid just to identify or to talk about what are the things that um, keep us connected, although those are always going to be expressed differently depending on the person. A value doesn't mean that you're going to exhibit it the same way. So, for example, the two of you may believe, but community for you may mean, hey, I'm going to go in, you know, work at um, a potluck, or I'm going to call my go check on my neighbor. Whereas for me, it might mean something completely different. And it doesn't mean that every person within the community has the same level of prescription to every value or that every value is as important. But it does mean that, you know, as sociologists talk about, we do have similar programming when it comes to how we think of the world and how we operate within society. It doesn't mean that we're uh, clones. It doesn't mean that we're robots. And so, you know, for example, one of those things might be something like social justice and equity. And I would say... You know, based on the research, and if you talk to a lot of people in the community, yeah, that's something that's important, not only because of our own experience in needing to secure equity and fighting for social justice and wanting to make sure that we have the freedoms and liberties that other communities and groups have, or that, you know, um, most American citizens and global citizens have, but because we also just recognize from our experience that's important for a healthy and inclusive world. So that's just an example. Now, how that gets manifest on a day-to-day basis would be different depending on who the person is and depending on their experiences. So, you know, again, you know, and, I, and I've been in situations and I've been in audiences where people have kind of winced and said, well, are you trying to say that we're all the same? No, but I am saying that just like we have, you have a family and you have resemblances, we have resemblances to each other. And it's okay for us to note those because I think those resemblances are what make us special. 
You know, one piece of uh, LGBT culture that has been in the news much too much over the last few months is drag. And I think that's something that cuts across different um, ethnic and racial lines. Black drag queens bring in their culture. White drag queens bring in their culture. Uh, Asian drag queens bring in their culture. Jewish drag queens bring in their culture. And it, it blends together beautifully to give, to, to make drag just a very diverse art form. Well, I would agree. I mean, I, I think what we're seeing, um, first of all, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not as well-versed in the history of drag, but we all know that in human history, we've had uh, experiences where people have gone to masquerade balls, people have done performance, people have impersonated other people, people have celebrated um, people who have, you know, a certain art form or whatnot, and that's really what drag for me symbolizes. A lot of what's happening right now is people, you know, conservatives um, and extremists are trying to target things in our community as they always have done. They say that somehow we're bringing some type of foreign or um, dangerous element into society. Now, we all know that drag has been around for quite some time and it's something that's enjoyed not just by our community, it's enjoyed by everybody, you know, or by a lot of people who are not LGBTQ, we put it that way. So what really is this? current or these, these news items really about. It's really about getting cash. It's really about generating clicks. It's really about creating controversy. And I, and I got that from, uh, I think it was Pete Buttigieg, or I think maybe it was his partner. Um, but the whole idea that these are really politically motivated, I don't really take um, substantively, and I, I don't think most people do, these uh, norms and these ideas that drag is somehow hurting children seriously. But we also know that the acts are very serious because what they're trying to do is to desecrate and denigrate our community and to put us for, make us further marginalized by saying that somehow kids are being uh, indoctrinated, that people are going to be influenced, that we're engaging in some art form that is uh, tawdry or unseemly. And it's, it's an art form like any other art form. It's performance. It's um, something that highlights the arts. And so for me, what it basically speaks to is, again, the misunderstanding that people have around um, our community, but also about anything that deviates from kind of the cis-heteronormative um, kind of uh, baseline. And uh, I've gone to drag shows. I enjoy drag shows. I will go to more drag shows in the future. Um, what's happening right now is just people and you know, extremists and conservatives are looking for any reason they can and for some new novel way to say that our community is doing something horrible that, of course, has been existing for quite some time. And, and I think it's helped bring some joy and some beauty into people's lives when they needed it. So I want to go back to the uh, um, the cultural values, the ones that you, uh, you identified. You said 15 themes emerged, and we don't have to go dwell into each and every one of them, but some of them are like equity, diversity, and inclusion, community, created creativity, pride, sexualization, sex positivity, gender fluidity, nonconformity, agency, perceptiveness, freedom, nurture, care, resilience, and zest. Were any of those kind of surprising to you? Well, it's like you went through all of them right there. Um, 
No, actually, none of them did. Uh, and what we did in the book is, although we identified 15, there really are nine meta-themes or clusters that are pretty similar. So we, for ease sake and just to make sure that people didn't get dizzy as they were reading it, uh, we were able to categorize and classify the values based on nine categories. None of them really surprised me. I mean, these are things that intuitively I knew and I sensed just as a member of the community, and we took painstaking effort to make sure that when we did the research, we talk to people who are familiar with the community. We talk to people who come from different backgrounds, and there was an intersectional focus. So this wasn't just, for example, gay men. This wasn't just people from a certain socio-political background or from a socioeconomic status. Um, none of them surprised me. So what it told me when I was looking at the research, it affirmed who we are, and that's the thing. It is is something to be said about affirming for people in their own way, in their own language, who they are. Prior to this, a lot of, prior to the research I did, a lot of the research that I found was based on um, anything I studied, for example, the LGBTQ community was based on epidemiology. It was based on, um, you know, any case studies around HIV and AIDS, social stigmatization, psychology. There were some consumer studies, but nothing again that kind of said, what does it mean for us in our own words, in our own language, from our own viewpoint to be a member of this community? So to have that kind of um, validation, affirmation, I think is important. We all know that academia can be used as a weapon against marginalized communities. And I think it's, it was certainly, a, I won't say a burden, but it was certainly a responsibility of mine in going through this exercise to make sure that I told the story of the community in a way that felt real and um, again, affirming and also felt honest as well. Um, talk a little bit about the beauty of LGBT culture, because we've talked about that there is a culture mm -hmm. and we shouldn't be afraid of discussing it, but talk about just the beauty of it a little bit. Well, I don't know if we have enough time for that, but you know, <laughs> the beauty of it exists in so many different ways. Um, so, for example, if we're looking at, and I, I cite some of these examples um, in the book, mm -hmm. if we look at, for example, um, just ballroom culture, which is one of my favorite aspects of the community. So here you have, when we think about ballroom culture, for those who are listening who may not be familiar, you have um, members of our community who are homeless, houseless, familyless, have been disowned or estranged from their loved ones, and they move to places like New York and they're living on the streets and they're just trying to make sure they can survive. And to have elders in the community, some who may have been trans or non-binary, some who may have been sex workers, it doesn't matter, to say we're gonna organize family units to take care of these young people and also take care of ourselves and to recreate the families that we never had. And then as a way of making money, as a way of finding stability, to perform in you know these different pageants and these different contests, using the best of who they were, um, I think is remarkable. It's innovative. It's a way of showing how the human spirit prevails and also how people in our community has always been in search of itself and has always been in search of each other, where we said we're not going to let um, ourselves, when we're at our best, we're not going to let anyone in our community not, um, we're not going to leave anybody behind. That's one of the best, one of my favorite aspects of the community. I think... If we talk about some other aspects, you know, resilience. Resilience mm -hmm. has become kind of a buzzword right now. 
And, you know, resilience isn't just having a positive mindset. Like, you actually have to have a practice. You actually have to have a way every single day to say, I'm not going to let this politician, this bully on the street, this employer, this teacher, or even the person in my family keep me down. How do you do that? How do you go about this, this process where you say, I'm not going to let my light be snuffed out? And so our community has been able to do that. And again, without a roadmap, without a book, without a guidepost to say, well, this is how it's done, um, at least from the mainstream society, we've been able to create that for ourselves. So there's, those are just I mean, a couple of examples. I think sexuality is something that's important for um, that we've been able to reframe. Um, you know, certainly living in North America, you know, it's different than living in Western Europe, where which is where I teach, where there's a much more sex-positive attitude when it comes to how we look at sexuality, how we think about sex, um, how we think about intimacy and sensuality. And I appreciate that the community has, at least in some respects, a much healthier attitude to say, this is part of the human experience. In fact, this is a spiritual experience. Let's talk about this. And in fact, maybe if we talked about this more, maybe we honored it more, maybe we embraced it more, we wouldn't see something of the awkward um, negative ways in which sexuality is discussed, you know, i.e. in ways that lead to things like assault and rape. I think if more men and women, particularly in the United States and North America, and more people who are, you know, non-binary were given that license to talk about their sexuality from a, a healthy, uh, in a healthy, positive way, then I think some of the behaviors that we see um, with kids in particular, but also with adults, we wouldn't see as much of that. And there's beauty to me in having that stance and having that approach. We need to take a break. We're talking to Dr. Joel A. Davis-Brown. His new book is called The Souls of Queer Folk, How Understanding LGBTQ Culture Can Transform Your Leadership Practice. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. Welcome back to Lambda Weekly. I'm Laurent Landis here with David Taffet, and now we have the Patty, uh, the all-time Patty Fink, with us. <laughs> We're talking to uh, Dr. Joel Davis Brown, who has a new book called "The Souls of Queer Folk," and. You were talking, you know, a lot of this is wrapped in around uh, the idea of leadership and leadership in, in, in the workplace anyway. Um, there's been uh, decades of building on trying to diversify um, the workforce or the workplace, um, not just in, you know, uh, racially or sexual orientation, but also in thought. But that didn't didn't they make that illegal in Texas? Well, well that's what recently? I'm getting to. Diversity, equity, and inclusion <laughs> efforts are slowly being eroded away. Um, what do you What are your thoughts on that, and how to, how to combat combat that? And also, why is um, DEI initiatives why are they important in the workplace? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things there. Um, you ask really thoughtful, um, rich questions. Uh, leadership first starts with the person and the self. So I want to make sure that people out there understand, too, that you don't have to necessarily be working for a corporation or in the workplace or in a business to exhibit good leadership. The reason I'm here is because I saw good leadership in the home. That was from my mom. Mm -hmm. But it also is, it shows up on how you lead your friends, how you show up in your community, and most importantly, when you look in the mirror and you see yourself. So I wanted to say that. In terms of what we're seeing not only in places like, you know, here in Texas, but other parts of the country, there's just an overall backlash. I mean, I think any time the existing power structure sees that it is itself is dying, that it's losing 
favor, that more people are wanting something different. Because we know that traditional militaristic top-down hierarchical leadership has just not worked. It just hasn't. Uh, we know that the egoistic, um, ego-driven type or form of leadership is what we saw and we've seen in political circles. We certainly saw in the White House from 2016 to 2020. It doesn't work. So there's a need for different models, not only because what we've tried has been unsuccessful, but because you have different people who are saying, that's just not going to work for me. I'm not going to be in, a, in an environment, I don't want to be in an environment where someone is yelling at me, someone is telling me that, suggesting that they're better than me, or that they're not respecting my humanity simply because of their position, their title, their level of power, their money, or their level of influence. So there needs to be something different, and so that's why this is important. But DEI has always been under assault. You know, it's, it's always been tenuous. It's always had to negotiate for space and power within any ecosystem. And this is just the latest round of it. And so I say that not to be flip or dismissive of your question, but also to help people to understand that if we understand the history, these things should not only should not be surprising to us, but we also cannot be daunted by them because history is replete with examples of people and um, practitioners who said, we got to keep this fight going. This is something that is just not going to be given to us. We have to take it. And that's the thing that concerns me when, you know, anytime I talk to people around any of the stuff that's taking place, DEI related, legislative um, stuff, you ha what have you, we have to get beyond this mindset that these things are just going to be given to us. And I know that sometimes it's human nature that we have successes, we get comfortable, and, you know, God knows there are days where I don't want to be doing quote-unquote activist things. I'd rather just be watching Netflix. But the reality is that's just not the life that we, um, mm -hmm. that's just not the, what we can do, and that's just not the life that I live, particularly when I think about what I want to leave behind for other generations so that they don't have to deal with the same type of stuff, right? So these are just nothing new. Um, and I think for many organizations, um, and I, hopefully this will lead into some conversation around, you know, what we're seeing with places like Target and, um, Cracker Barrel and Heiser Bush, it can't be performative. If you're really going to say that you're invested in diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, it has to be something substantive. It can't just be something that you're doing because it makes you look good. Although we know for a lot of corporations, that's exactly what it is. You know, I always laugh that June 1st comes around, everybody take, pulls out all their rainbow paraphernalia and floats and whatnot, and then by June 30th, they're just rushing the packet all the way. That can't be, and that is um, contrary to diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, you were talking earlier, um, Doctor, about resilience, and I've always believed this about our community as a value and, and a lived value, um, and that is, I, th I think we're um, perhaps better at relationships and relationship building than others in the heteronormative culture might be, because I think you could go to any community in this country and find at least one couple if not many who've been together 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and they're revered in our communities as those early pioneers who made it. Um, but they had no support from, from the legal system. They certainly had no support from um, even being outlawed. This is the neutrality of not being a criminal. Um, but no positive supports either to make that relationship work. And so I think we do know how, at least to and many of us who strive to, you know, like, Laurent, you've been together how long? Just celebrated 26. 26 years. See, yeah. that's, 
that doesn't happen by itself. That happens because you put a lot of work into it. And it a lot of communication skills and a lot of things to to arrive where you are today from beginning in the time when you had no support. Not only, in not Texas, only, we were criminals. Right, yeah, not only not any support on the legal front, but really no even immediate or visible mentors to look up to. Right. You just kind of have to do it on your own. I mean, so there are a couple of things I want to pick up on here. Number one, how beautiful and wonderful it is that we can talk about our community in glowing terms. Because as we all know, there are sometimes, I, I will sometimes encounter people who will say, well, you're trying to make us all to be saints. And I said, well, no, I'm not saying that we're saints, but we're certainly not the degenerate folks that, you know, on social media. Let me just jump in. Right here, the three of us are saints. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm working towards it, so, you know, perhaps you can knight me at some point. Uh, happy to. Elevate me to that level. I, I appreciate that. But I think it's because I, I worry sometimes around about, internalized homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia where we don't see our own gifts. And I've had some people say to me, well, I don't need to read your book because, hey, I'm part of the queer community. I get it. Well, you know, I, I wish that were the case, but I also found far too many situations. And I've also, in my own personal life, I've been in situations where I forgot my gifts, not just as a queer person, not just as a black person, but just as Joel. So I think we all can use reminders of that. So I think it's beautiful to talk about that. In terms of relationships, the Gottmans, who are, you know, for me, and I think for the world, are the pioneers on relationships and what makes them work. They've actually said that, um, you know, on the on average, queer families and queer relationships are no different than their cis-heteronormative counterparts, except that they found queer couples and relationships had better communication skills, were more open about talking about sexuality, and were kinder to each other. Let's Let's talk about that again. They were, were better at communication, were more open and, and have more frank conversations around sex and sexuality, but were kinder to each other. So where does that come from? I think that comes from having to figure it out and realizing that, hey, if you come into a relationship, not that you should be desperate and not that you should look at the relationship as being the end all to be all, but if you come into a relationship, you find someone, particularly in a world or a community that doesn't support you, you need to figure out how to make it work. And you gotta figure out how to hold on to each other because that relationship, that bond, is special. So there is something to be said for that. There might be people out there listening who will say, well, are you trying to say there are other communities who possess similar um, talents, if you will, or abilities? Not at all. And we have to remember, too, that our community is also informed and made up of people who come from all these other backgrounds. So BIPOC communities, women, uh, trans community, of course, people who are immigrants, people who are from different faith uh, traditions, different generations. So our community is very much informed by the mosaic known as humanity, and we also have the additional layer of sexuality and um, gender nonconformity, which I think gives us even more insight and more, uh, again, cultural genius um, as we navigate the uh, modern society. Well, I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, you know, at the beginning of June, you know, all these companies are out with the rainbow flags, and by the end of the month, they wrap it up and uh, you know hear about it again until the next year. Uh, some companies, uh, like the one I work for, they do have um, these things called community groups. You know, there's a group for African American uh, groups, or one for. Uh, women, one for the LGBT community, and not all companies have those. 
um, but those do go on all year. I just wanted to get your take. Do you think in terms of leadership, those are good for companies? Um, and if your company does not have one, should you suggest to whoever's in that leadership role to create those? I do think every company should have one, but the question really to me is what's the purpose of it? Because I've seen some situations where there have been what they call employee resource groups Mm -hmm. or community groups or affinity groups where they're just there to socialize. And I'm not there to say that I don't like a good time and it's not good to get together with members of your tribe, but I think there needs to be more focus on how to accelerate career development, how to make sure that people overcome and identify common barriers, and how do you make sure that you get more people of your particular tribe in leadership positions and positions of visibility within the company. So, you know, to you know, make it simple, we're not just here to have cocktails and to, you know, have fun. We're also here to strategize. We're also here to help lift each other up so that, you know, you are running the company. You are in positions of influence. Therefore, people who then come behind you don't have to go through some of the same things. I also think, and I, I you know, I, I, this is what I do. So I, I own a, a consulting firm, and so this is one of the things that we talk about. When you have an ERG, you know, companies would do well to use that ERG not only to share cultural insights. So, for example, there's a marketing campaign that you're going on. Well, who better to know what's going to work and who does what's not going to work than members of the queer community? Right. But I would also say if there's a particular issue, problem, innovation that the company is looking to solve for or create, and let's say the LGBTQ ERG has done that, that helps to show the value of our community. So these shouldn't just be social groups. These can be groups that I think can help lead innovation. They can help be ambassadors for the community. And they can also help to strengthen the bonds of those who are within the community so that they can support each other as they go forward. And I think too, I, just from a political point of view in this in the situation we're in today, I think it's really important for um, established ERGs that um, are composed of LGBTQ plus employees um, need to maintain visibility. We are in a state in our community across the country, but particularly in the South, where um, they don't want us to be um, open about who we are. They want us to be in the closet and ashamed. And they're, they're styling laws to do that. That's the ultimate outcome. Can't talk about gay in school. Can't talk about trans. You know, all of these things to sort of, um, um, I'd say, snuff us out in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that visibility within um, business and within American commerce, I think, is really important. So even if an ERG exists and they're not really doing social events, at least do some visibility things on your calendar. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because if, because once we yeah. once we self remove in the workplace and we're no longer visible in the workplace, then those laws really do become real. Mm-hmm. They do. This, this really is all part of a design, right? I mean, this this these efforts are not new. The way that you oppress a people is, or the way that you um, keep a people down, is by making them uh, making them seem um, scary. So that's happening by erasing their history and by keeping them silent and um, keeping them invisible. So, and this has been done before. We've seen situations, for example, back in the 70s, these types of things. We've seen them before them, back in the 40s and the 50s as well. We've seen them in the 80s. So what we have to do is take back our power and take back our narrative. If anything, you know, the book can be read from many different levels, but if anything, 
the book is about at least you know my attempt to say I'm tired of the story that's being told about us being so off and just wrong and just so or insufficient. So you know people, for example, saying. Um, oh, you know, you all are good for parties and entertainment. Well, we do a lot more than that, you know. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we yeah, we can throw a colorful party. Yes, we know how to exhibit pride, but we also are badass. We also have, you know, are doing pretty amazing things and have stood up organizations and communities and businesses all across the world. That's not hyperbole. That is actual fact. So we do have an obligation to ourselves to continue to tell the story because once you take away the narrative, and we're seeing this, right, then people start to think it's not possible to overcome this. Maybe we should accept this. All hope is lost. When again, if we look throughout history, time and time again, we have seen examples of members of our community who've been able to overcome this and been able to show the the ingenuity, the latitude, the brilliance that we as a community possess to do it. So if we want, it's like having uh, kind of like a roadmap or a recipe. That's the beauty of telling the stories because that recipe then gets passed on to future generations where they don't have to operate from scratch or they don't have to operate from zero. They can actually build upon the legacies that are already there. One thing I wanted to bring up, and um, before you were saying, I'm not trying to be dismissive of your question. You can be dismissive of this one. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you sent in your uh publicity about the book is you say you'd be hard-pressed to find a leader who doesn't want to be better and I scratched my head and I said I can the governor of Texas the lieutenant governor of Texas the impeached attorney general of Texas governor of Florida the attorney general in Florida um, are we over estimating who our leaders are I would say to you, and I would, I'm, I'm not here to defend um, either Governor Abbott um, at all. Um, I do think people want to be better, but I think his way and their way, their ways of becoming better, they're simply just misguided. And so, um, Governor Abbott thinks that what he's doing is serving people. Now, I can't begin to unlock some of that convoluted logic that he has, but I do think just as a species again just as people people do want to do better be better the question is are they being machiavellian the question is are they being self-serving and that's where the ethics come in that's where the um the values come in what are you fighting for are you really fighting for everyone so i would say to governor Abbott, if i had audience with him um who are you really trying to serve and we know who he's trying he's not trying to serve um all of you know the majority of texans or or whatnot, he's trying to serve a very special interest group and he's trying to serve perhaps his own political ambition. That runs very contrary to what I think ethical, transformational leadership is. When you're looking to be um, a leader, in some ways you're looking to be an activist. You're looking to make some type of impact on the world. But if you're not looking to make positive impact and if you're not looking to actually lift up everyone, then I have to question what type of leadership you have. And so um, I, I wouldn't say that um, even our foes are not trying to be better leaders, but the, the folly in what they're doing is that they don't recognize that you can't lead if you don't include us. Nothing for us without us. You can't lead and push forward any type of future better Texas if you're not trying to include the LGBTQ community and not just referencing the community as part of what needs to be corrected, but recognizing that LGBTQ people need to be at the table and need to be um, having a meaningful conversation at the table. 
that's my take. I know others may disagree, but you know, I do think most people do want to do better. But again, they're misguided, they're misinformed, or they simply have not understood. And some of them never will. And I have no um, delusions that there's some people who are never going to understand our value. And I'm also very much not about respectability politics, about begging people to um, see our value. But for those who are open and for those who um, do want to learn, I think there's opportunities there. But more importantly, for the queer babies who are out there, that's who we want to reach. Because we're not here necessarily to get anybody to um, uh, affirm or validate us. We have to validate ourselves first. And by doing that, then I think we can do what we need to do. And that's just been, again, history for any marginalized group is that we don't ask, we have to do So that's really the impetus, the impetus for me, and I hope is the motivation for most of the people who are listening. And I have to agree with you that I think that um, people who have um, a strong and positive goal who, who present themselves in leadership can lead others to that goal. I'm troubled in Texas by when we say he wants to do better or uh, speaking of Abbott or Patrick or, or Paxton, um, you know, better comes from the, it's a superlative of, of good, good, better, best. And their definition of good versus evil is <laughs> completely different than ours. And I think it's safe to say that because marginalizing well, us in law is not a good thing. But he thinks it's a good thing for his, for his people to marginalize us and to marginalize brown people and black people and you know, Asian people and all the things that they're doing today in terms of othering. Well, one of the things that he did say was misguided and misinformed. And I think that describes our leaders here in Texas oh, currently. Oh, sure. <laughs> we need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffin here in the studio with Laron Landis and the late Patty Fink. Our guest is Dr. Joel A. Davis-Brown. His new book is The Souls of Queer Folk, and we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. KNON's 40th anniversary celebration is coming up soon. Get your tickets um, if you haven't already. we got four great artists that's going to be performing at KNON's 40th anniversary. Tejano from Jay Perez, Blues with Ariel Griffin and the Blues Palette Show, Band with special uh, guests Greg A. Smith and Fat Daddy, Rock and Roll from Igor and the Red Elvises, Country by the Matt Hillier Grand, Sunday, July 30th, Early show running from uh, 2 to 9 p.m. at the Granada Theater in Dallas. Um, you can get your tickets at knon.org. Uh, this is all presented by the Jimmy Wallace Guitars and sponsored in part by Domingo Garcia Law Offices and KNON Family Sponsors, uh, Venturity Financial Partners, Picasso Construction and Moving, D-Town Boxing, Gilbert's Trucking, the Law Office of K.R. Wittenberg, and Blackwell, Blackburn, Herring, and Singer LLP. Hi, this is Patty Fink, and you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. Welcome back. We're talking again with uh, Dr. Joel A. Davis-Brown, who has a new book out called The Souls of Queer Folk that uh, talks a lot about leadership. And um, Dr. Brown, I want to talk to you about leadership um, and activism, particularly within the LGBTQ community. I think sometimes the two may get wrapped together, not necessarily the same thing. You can be a leader, but that doesn't mean you're an activist, if that makes sense. Um, so can you kind of elaborate what is activism and what it is not? 
Well, um, activism, first of all, begins with you activating your own consciousness. And so I, I don't want to get into semantics, but I am a little bit. I think a good leader is an activist. Um, I think a good leader, I think uh, a leader, at least the way I define it, um, is someone who does not sit idly by while things are taking place that disparage or dehumanize people and just let it go by. They step in, they speak up, they do something, they mobilize, they use whatever power they can to do that. But to have that type of consciousness, you also have to have activated your own sense of purpose and self to realize that what helps someone else is also very much impacting you. And to also know that activism and leadership, more importantly, go beyond simply the um, armchair things of liking things on Facebook or regurgitating things. Sometimes there's certainly beauty in sharing articles, sharing information and knowledge, but it's about figuring out what works in for you and doing that very thing. Um, and so I, you know, this is something, a conversation, frankly, that I've seen people have in spiritual circles where you've seen a lot of faith communities, and I'm speaking of inclusive communities where, you know, they've said, our leadership can't just be talking about, you know, the here and after or how to be a better person or how to live the perfect life. If you do not speak up when you see people who are being harmed by policy or whatnot. So I think if you're going to be, at least particularly in today's climate environment, if you're going to be, quote unquote, a strong, good transformational leader, there's no way that you cannot be an activist. But an activist is not someone who is just motivated by how you impact other people. They also are following their own internal moral compass. And that's where I think some people have um, may lose their their way because they're doing things to get ballot or to get um, attention from others, but they're really not connecting what they're doing to their own purpose and to their own understanding of the world. And that is the difference. So if someone is really looking to be a leader and to be an activist, you have to have the internal piece worked out as well. Otherwise, what you do will look shallow, it'll look um, self-serving, and it will not be effective. So there has to be a moral imperative coming from you internally as well. Well, you know, because I've heard people say throughout the years, you know, I'm not the type to go march in a parade or march for a cause or join some political group. Um, but they are like out at work. Um, they're very much out at work. And I think that in itself is a form of activism to me. Um, there are, you know, there are, there are the LGBT uh, openly uh, parents standing up for their kids and sometimes doing it by themselves. I think that's a form of activism. Would you Would I agree? I yeah. Would. And I would also, though, ask people when they say, I'm not the type of person to do that. Well, who is the type of person who does that? And if we think about any of the movements, let's look at, for example, Black Lives Matter, which was started by three queer people. Okay, a lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, those people, I'm sure, were not, you know, um, Patricia Cullors, and I'm, I'm forgetting uh, the two of the other founders' names, uh, Alicia Garza, and there's one other person's name I'm forgetting right now. I'm sure they had <coughs> other things they wanted to do with their time. You know, I'm sure they thought... Yeah, I'd rather you know not have to organize and to do this, but again, the need is there, and if not me, then who, and if not now, then when? So I do agree with you, yes, that activism does not have to look the same for every single person. And I would also say, too, sometimes what I think when people are saying things like, I'm not that type of person, is because they, they either, there's some fear there, mm -hmm. and there's this image of belief that to be a leader or to be an activist means you have to be superhuman. You don't have to be superhuman. 
it just means that you are able to put one foot in front of the other to say, I'm not willing to allow this to go forward and I can do something, even if it is just walk in, uh, be a part of a protest or to write a letter or to make a, uh, a sign, anything like that, donating money. But so I, I think we, we have to, and I think, again, this is by design, we have to reframe with social justice. Social justice in some circles is still getting the bad name. It's still something that, oh, only radicals do. Only right. people of that type of ilk do. And then radical is anybody who does, is not happy with the status quo. So I guess I would be considered a radical. So I think we also have to liberate that, that term and that phrase because a lot of people don't realize that by buying into that ideology, we are basically hurting our own cause by thinking that it's something that only a certain people do or that people who do it are somehow um, radicalized or are people who um, are some unsavory element. It, and, you know, activism can be fun. When this station 40 years ago later this month came to a group of us and said, would you like to do an LGBT? Well, they wouldn't have called it that. They would have called it a gay radio show. Yeah. Uh, the group said, sure. And then went back to meet together and said, okay, now what is that? <laughs> but it was activism. <laughs> In August of 1983. Mm -hmm. Right. And this show's been on the air since the station went on the air. The day the station went on the air, we've been here. Congratulations. It's been 40 years. Huh? Yeah, 40 years every Sunday. Every Sunday. <laughs> but it's fun. You know, activism doesn't have to be spoken about like it's this drudgery. <laughs> sure. It, it's exactly. A, it's a lot of fun. I want to jump to another topic where... Uh, starting to run out of time. One of the things that you talk about is non-binary thinking. Is non-binary thinking something new? Is it, um, is it different than LGBT thinking? Um, or it, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's anything new, um, but I think, again, <clears throat> it's about Celebrating it and elevating it to something to a level where people recognize it doesn't need to be something shrouded in or kept in the shadows. Um, I think, and helping particularly our community to realize that the way that we do it and the manner in which we do it is something that is uh, impactful, noteworthy, and should be celebrated. A lot of times, I mean, I, I, not to be corny, but when we go back to, you know, you think about any of the superhero, superhero, superperson movies that are out there, it's all about helping a person that protagonist to recognize not that they have the talent but that the talent also has value so yeah the, the talent in terms of non-binary thinking not just being limited by the choices in front of you recognizing that there are different ways to achieve certain things and just rejecting paradigms altogether i think is certainly not new um any quote-unquote revolutionary any quote-unquote radical any person who's been a counter-culturalist of any sort has done that but I think also helping people to realize that you don't have to go out and study or go to Harvard or get an MBA to learn some of this stuff. The stuff that you do every single day by virtue of being a queer person has already equipped you to do it. So now use it in a different context or use it to a greater, in a greater way or use it without apology. That's the opportunity that I'm trying to impress with people in the book is, yeah, many of us are never going to, you know, be in courses or get certifications around quote-unquote leadership but you don't have to and that's the beauty of what we bring to the table is that we can size up 
and own what we have in a way and use it in a way to be more effective without thinking that we have to go and look for something outside of us or outside of our community. So yes, you know, to answer your question, we have been around for a very long time and we're now just giving it the uh, is, is due queer style. How about that? I like that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fantastic. And I think it's really true too for folks who, who've never really done those, you know, marched in that parade or that protest or rally. Um, there, there are bazillions of occasions watching television, uh, going home for Thanksgiving, uh, lots of occasions when uh, people may say something to you or characterize you in a way that's not valid or, or true at all, um, and you step up and say something. And you've certainly formulated the thoughts in your head about what you might say if you're listening, for example, to the TV rather than throw something at the TV. You're thinking about what you would say back to this person who's who's basically pissing you off <laughs> as you listen to them. Um, and, and so everybody has within them their their um, you know deck of cards to play. Yeah. And uh, I think that's Absolutely. that's so well put, Doctor. But the every, we have what we need already. Yeah, it's about not always discovery. Sometimes it's simply about permission. Um, I can tell you that having coached literally, you know, um, hundreds of people over 18 years, most of my conversations are not about helping people to discover something about themselves, um, particularly from our community. It's about giving them permission, encouragement, and license to do what they already know they can and to do it in the way they already want to. It's like it's already there. So that's one of the things that I think, again, given the onslaught of negativity that's coming our way and you know, all the things coming in terms of legislation, we have to stay vigilant and we have to stay mindful of what we bring, not just to our community, but to the world. The world needs us. And that may seem like a very radical statement, but I would say it as long as I draw breath, the world needs us. Absolutely. Some of them just don't know that, but the world needs us and we certainly need ourselves. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is all of the parenting studies that have been done. Um, religion has, or weaponized religion, has tried to paint LGBT parents as not capable of being parents, grooming the kids to be whatever. Uh, and so studies have been done, and one study after another has proven that lesbian couples make the best parents. Of course. Gay couples make the next best parents. And then coming in close behind are straight couples. And good for them. <laughs> I, I do want to uh, have you talk just a little bit, and I mean, we could do an hour on this easily, but weaponizing religion. Yeah, um, and you know, at the beginning of our podcast, I, I mentioned that I have a particular relationship with Dallas. Well, uh, my father lives in Dallas. Uh, my my father is a Texan, and most of my family on that side is lives in and is from Texas. All of this, all of them are from Texas, and all, most of them live in Texas. And I remember many years ago coming down to see my dad, and I said, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to go to see the Promise Keepers. And for those of you who don't remember the Promise Keepers, they're a right-wing conservative group, and the focus is on helping men reclaim their manhood or masculinity, whatever it was. And I remember saying, no, there's no way I'm going to go to that. So, of course, I get to Dallas, and what does, I said to my dad, what are we doing this weekend? And what did he say? We're going to the Promise Keepers meeting. 
which led to me at some point leaving his house, getting to the airport, and spending the better part of 36 hours in DFA, um, simply waiting to get back home um, and go back to college because I refused to go to that. Hmm. Religion is one of those things. Um, we're, we're in the middle of a period now of white Christian nationalism where people would tell you that being... Um, being American means to be certain things, means to be white and cis heteronormative, and also being a Christian means that you believe certain things. And I'll never forget speaking once to um, a group, a, a class on gender and sexuality, and this lady was saying to me, well, you shouldn't be here because the Bible says this. And, and my words to her were, um, you speaking to me about the Bible is like someone coming to me here and talking about the Chinese constitution, if there is such a thing. Is irrelevant. I'm not here to say that your religion or your beliefs um, aren't important for you, but one thing I would love for us to stop doing, and I don't think it's necessarily from our community, but I think definitely from mainstream circles, is stop creating this false equivalency where someone will say, well, don't they have a right to their religious beliefs? And I was like, well, if your religious beliefs subjugate people and discriminate against people, then I think they should be put into question. I'm not here to say that a person should not have their faith and they shouldn't have their relationship with their higher power. But I think of the underlying premise of your practice and of your belief system is that others need to be made to feel bad or worse or inhuman for you to be make, to be made to feel good. I think there's something wrong with that. And I, I would love for us as a society to stop having the, uh, the paralysis when someone says, well, I, have, I'm, I believe in this religion or I have this faith um, or this is my spiritual practice. And therefore saying, well... Okay, you said you belong to a religious tradition, so therefore we can't question, challenge, or uh, refute what you're saying. It's an idea, and I'm, I'm a person who has a strong spiritual practice, but it is an idea, and we are allowed to have different ideas, and our Constitution protects us from the intrusion or the um, maladaptation of religion. So we have got to as a community and with our allies to not give people the high road and not to see territory simply when people say that they have a spiritual tradition because there are many communities christian jewish muslim among them who are inclusive who do not believe in what i would call the bigoted gospel so we we have to make sure that we don't give them that territory that we don't give them those arguments as though somehow being a of a certain faith tradition is unassailable it is not and it is sort of one, one uh, group that seems to want to do that to, to m make their religious beliefs supersede the yes, rights of people, others. Yes, your people, Patty. You're my people. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did read an op-ed in the last few days um, about the the 303 creative case that just um, w the ruling came from the Supreme Court um, last week. Um, and uh, one of the things that the, the, the whole premise of this op-ed was to suggest that if your religion and your business put you in a, in a position of refusing service to others because of who they are, you need to be in a different business. Yeah. And so putting the onus back on the, the business owner who's attempting to refuse service to others. And I, I thought that yeah, was correct. brilliant. So it really is on them. Um, do you really want to, you know, face your maker and say, I turned away thousands of people? You know, I'm using hyperbole here, but, you know. I turned away anybody. Yeah, I turned away anybody. Well, 
I just look at it from the standpoint of would we be okay with someone saying, I'm not going to serve you because you're black? Exactly. Right. And um, obviously, you know, being queer and being black are not exactly the same thing, but they are analogous. And what I come back to is our laws are defined in such a way without a rogue Supreme Court to suggest that we are entitled when there's, um, I don't want to get too lawyerly here, but when you're engaged in commerce, that you cannot discriminate against people based on impermissible factors and based on the protective status. So I don't, it, it's just one of those things where, yeah, if, if you're if you're so appalled or so um, upset about serving uh, queer people, then maybe just serve your family or maybe you just stay and, and have a business of one or an audience of one because that's just not the world that we live in and that's not how the laws have historically been interpreted. We are out of time. This hour just flew. Thank flew you so by. much. Thank the, you so much, Doctor. Is, come back. back. Thank you all. Definitely come back. Congratulations on your anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. The book is Souls of Queer Folk, How Understanding LGBTQ Culture Can Transform Your Leadership Practice. Uh, it's by Dr. Joel A. Davis-Brown and available on Amazon or where fine books are sold. For all of us here at Lambda Weekly, have a good week.